Hello and welcome to The Bigger Picture, a podcast where we tell the stories that matter. I'm your host this week, Stephen Perkins. Nowadays, it seems as if the term constitutional crisis gets thrown around just about once a week. President Trump's latest crisis-triggering action, a pardon for former Sheriff Joe Arpaio, led to numerous opinion pieces about the impending constitutional doomsday. But to find a real and contemporary example of a constitutional crisis, look no farther than the Watergate scandal in 1973, during which President Richard Nixon's administration obstructed investigators and left the stability of the federal government hanging in the balance. It was a scary time for the country, seeing the president abuse his power and his legitimacy being questioned more and more by the day. But as scary as it was, I'm sure it wasn't as scary as learning of a president's death. That has happened a few times in our nation's history, most notably the assassination of President Lincoln and President Kennedy. But as significant as those deaths were for the country, none of them compare to the death of William Henry Harrison. In fact, President Harrison's death is the reason why we have a clear order of secession that we can be confident in today. This week, we're talking about John Tyler, the first VP to assume the presidency following a president's death. In history class, we often learn about President William Henry Harrison for the only real legacy he left behind, dying a month into office because he didn't wear a coat nor a hat during his cold and wet inauguration. His inaugural address, you may also know, is the longest to this day. The combination of these things make it no surprise that he died from a cold, thrusting Southerner John Tyler into the office of the presidency in April of 1841. Although the process of the vice president becoming the president is an albeit rare but rather easy transition today, back then, such wasn't the case. To put it simply, it sparked a monumental constitutional crisis that actually plagued the Tyler presidency throughout his term. You see, Article 2, Section 1, Clause 6 of the Constitution states what shall happen if the president is unable to serve. It reads, quote, in case of the removal of the president from office or of his death, resignation, or inability to discharge the powers and duties of the said office, the same shall devolve on the vice president. Fairly clear, right? Well, like many things in the Constitution, it's kind of up to interpretation. The cabinet, which was appointed by Harrison, met right after his death and took issue with the concept of the office of president devolving to Tyler as vice president. They believed, as could reasonably be derived from the text of the Constitution, that only the power and duties of the presidency would go to Tyler because of how it says, quote, the same shall devolve when referring to the powers and abilities. In fact, they wanted his new title to be something along the lines of vice president acting as president or acting president, which some, including Tyler, didn't think had a very nice ring to it. Harrison and Tyler were members of the Whig Party, and the party's leader, Henry Clay, a one-time friend of Tyler, considered him to be merely a regent. Others punched a little bit harder, calling him his accidency and his ascendancy. Just imagine what the churning hashtags on Twitter would have been at the time. 
What was even more of a blow to Tyler was the aggressive stance that the cabinet then took against his supposed right to act as the executive. They informed him during that official meeting that they would make decisions by a consensus. But because they weren't completely rude, they did allow him to have one vote. Now, to be fair, that is how President Harrison specifically set up his cabinet to operate, by consensus. But remember, this was no longer Harrison's cabinet. It was Tyler's. Tyler, as you could imagine, did not agree with the terms of this proposed arrangement and demanded the full rights of the presidency, including the proper title without any asterisks or hyphenation. In his view, he was the president and the cabinet worked for him. He was not about to give up control to a group of people he didn't select. In his biography of Tyler, Robert Seeger shares the powerful words that Tyler had for his cabinet that day. Quote, I am the president and I shall be held responsible for my administration, he said. I shall be pleased to avail myself of your counsel and advice, but I can never consent to being dictated to as what I shall or shall not do. I hope to have your hearty cooperation in carrying out this administration's measures. So long as you see fit to do this, I shall be glad to have you with me. When you think otherwise, your resignations will be accepted. In other words, cooperate or get out. Before we move forward, let's go back for a moment and talk about the cabinet. Like we said, Tyler wasn't going to be muzzled and undermined by a group of men he didn't even select. So why didn't he just fire all of them and form a cabinet full of his allies? While the 1800s seems like a simpler time, political posturing and careful use of political capital were still very much important considerations, especially for a man like Tyler who didn't have the confidence of being president yet. The easy answer is Tyler didn't want to alienate Harrison's supporters. The more nuanced answer is twofold. One, he already knew how fragile the country's first ever unexpected transition of presidential powers was. Therefore, he didn't want to appear as if he was wiping out the government and starting over again. He had to be careful. Secondly, the Whig party at this time was becoming increasingly unhappy with Tyler. In fact, just like political parties today, things get complicated when you speak about the establishment figures and those outside of the party establishment. Tyler, in essence, was not the most popular Whig, but it's also fair to say he wasn't the most unpopular one either. His selection as vice president, interestingly enough, was largely by chance, not to mention a very messy process. Unlike how we view vice presidents today, that is, a heartbeat away from the presidency, Back then, they weren't a big deal. After all, up until that point, no president had actually died or resigned while in office. So you could imagine the shock when Harrison does die and Tyler becomes, well, whatever it is he becomes before they agree to call him president. We'll talk in a bit about how they treated him after this. Nonetheless, as it is said in theater and politics, the show must go on. While Tyler and the cabinet had their disagreements, he ended up taking the oath of office and assumed the presidency. And when I say that he assumed the presidency, this wasn't because people finally agreed to his interpretation of the Constitution. And as a fun side note, Tyler was actually a strict constitutionalist. It's widely debated that uh, had he been true to that, he would have sided with his cabinet's interpretation of the Constitution. But anyways, the reason why it's important to talk about how he assumed the presidency is because he literally just kind of decided he was done with the arguments and assumed the office, along with its title and its powers. It was, for lack of a more objective term, 
a power grab, and many saw it as such. Today, we kind of credit Tyler with expanding the powers of the president because of this. On April 9th, just five days after Harrison died, President Tyler delivered an inaugural address to Congress in which he shared his vision for the country and outlined an agenda that angered many in his own party. For one, it was an agenda that differed from Harrison's. Not surprising if you knew Tyler's background, but nonetheless, it was seen as inappropriate by Harrison loyalists. But the anger was primarily from the fact that he assumed the presidency the way he had. Congress was not a fan of how boldly he acted. Regardless, Congress did end up treating Tyler, for the most part, as the president, although they did try to induce measures that would refer to Tyler as vice president. One thing is for sure, you can't say they gave up without a fight. The four years that Tyler would serve as president were, to be quite honest, hell. He was kicked out of the Whig party. His opponents, of which there were many in government, never really gave into the idea that he was president, and Congress tried to impeach him after he vetoed a tariff bill. He was the first president to have an impeachment resolution filed against him. While he survived the attempt at impeachment, he was never able to fully recover from the rocky start to his administration. In 1844, a tired John Tyler was up for re-election. Since he was no longer a Whig, he went to his old party, the Democrats, but at this time they didn't really want him. So like any self-respecting major party reject, he formed a third party, the Democratic Republicans. Ever heard of him? He would lose the election for obvious reasons, but that's not to say his entire legacy was doomed. To be fair, while we have mostly painted a dark picture of Tyler's presidency, there were some positives that came out of it. For starters, he annexed the great state of Texas in 1845 on his way out of office, which is why I am able to call myself an American today. He also worked with the British to end the dispute over our northern border with Canada, thanks to the Webster-Ashburton Treaty. While this story may all seem quite silly today, in 1841, this was a serious issue that really rocked the foundation of a relatively young country. There were legitimate concerns over how Tyler just basically declared himself president. While it is true that his actions made the presidency more powerful than it originally was, he also helped set in place a model of presidential secession that, although would not be legally recognized until the ratification of the 25th Amendment in 1967, did help eight other times throughout history when a vice president had to assume the presidency. And for that, we tip our hat to President John Tyler. While he may be ranked consistently as one of our worst presidents, he wasn't totally useless. Well, folks, that's it for this first full episode of this show. We hope you enjoyed this week's story. If you did, please subscribe to the show on whatever app you use for podcasts. You can follow at Outset Network on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and you can view all of our other podcasts by going to OutsetNetwork.com. Until next week's episode, I'm Stephen Perkins. Thanks for listening. Music